Hello, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to another exciting episode of the Bulletproof Entrepreneur Podcast. I'm your host, Chi Odogu. On this segment of the Summer Personal Development Series, I am talking to David C. Baker. David is an author, speaker, and advisor, and he specializes in helping entrepreneurial experts make better decisions. So, what does that mean? Well, David is the expert expert, or he's the consultant's consultant. He helps people who rely on their intelligence and creativity to make a living optimize their their systems, their processes, and their thinking so that they can command premium pricing, they can be better positioned in the marketplace, and they can get better outcomes for their clients. We had a wide-ranging conversation on this episode of the podcast about David's background, how he got started in consulting, and why he decided to specialize in the niche-niche segment of consulting, which is basically consulting about being an expert to expert. So this is one that you are not going to meet, especially if you are a management consultant, some type of thought leader, entrepreneurial speaker, trainer, and someone who relies on their own intelligence and creativity to come up with solutions to problems in the marketplace. This is one episode where David breaks it all down, and his book in particular helps you understand what it means to be in the business of expertise. I had so much fun talking to David on this episode of the podcast, and I think you're going to get a lot out of it. And of course, if you want to contact David, you can always reach him. By the time you listen to the end of the show, you'll know how you can find David, and you can get his book on Amazon and wherever books are sold. So with that said, I'm going to transition off into the episode now. So here is David C. Baker on the business of expertise. Hey, everyone. Welcome to another exciting episode of the Bulletproof Entrepreneurial Podcast. My guest today is David C. Baker. David is an entrepreneurial advisor and speaker who teaches entrepreneurs how to leverage and profit from their expertise. He's a thought leader and master consultant that helps clients around the world, especially clients in the knowledge workspace, leverage their expertise to create profitable outcomes for themselves and for the companies with which they operate. He's a regular speaker. He's spoken at TED. He also spoken at Harvard. Um, He's worked with Adobe and several other international companies. He's a noted keynote speaker. He's spoken at so many international conferences. He's written his fifth book titled The Business of Expertise, How Entrepreneurial Experts Convert Insight to Impact and Wealth. I'm pleased to have him on the show today to tell us a little bit about himself, his business, and his entrepreneurial journey. And just one quick fun fact, David actually grew up with a tribe of Mayan Indians in a remote village in the highlands of Guatemala. He's a helicopter pilot as well as an airplane pilot and an avid photographer. So I think um, David has um, reached the end of his creative spectrum, being that he has such a very wildly versed background. So David, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's really good to be here. I've been looking forward to this and just listening to all that stuff. I'm just tired just thinking of all the things I've tried to do at a passable level. I'm just exhausted listening to it. (laughs) So it's nice to take a break and just talk on the phone for a while. (laughs) Yes. So David, how did your adventures in entrepreneurship get started? How did you become like a master consultant to consultants? 
oh, I wish I could tell you that I went to some course or I read this book or, you know, there was some magic. And really the truth is that you can kind of trace the steps as you look back on your life. But Mm -hmm. looking forward, to me, it was really a combination of hard work, uh, a passable intelligence, and then a lot of luck. I, I consider myself incredibly fortunate because I know a lot of people who are a lot smarter and who work harder than me who haven't reached some of those success, success levels, and I don't, I don't take it for granted. But it, it started out really, I think, listening to my parents, especially my dad, who was a Protestant medical missionary, oddly enough. Mm-hmm. And so you wouldn't think that there'd be a lot of overlap between that and entrepreneurship. But over the years, I've begun to look at that experience differently because uh, a medical missionary is somebody who doesn't usually get along with his bosses, mm-hmm. <laughs> somebody who's um, a bold traveler, who's self-sufficient, who's willing to create something from nothing, who doesn't like rules, who likes to experiment. And so I guess I learned a bunch of that stuff from him. And then, you know, I followed the same path that every kid does, I think, you know, mowing mowing lawns and those sorts of things. And it wasn't until later when I started to be able to tie some of those risky decisions to making money. But I'm really grateful to be in this place. I I consider myself to be so fortunate to be learning from really smart people every week where I sit down with a new consultant or a new advisor. And and as I try to solve their problem, I'm discovering their unique approach to pattern matching and thinking and intelligence and expertise. So it's great. Wonderful. Nice. Now, um, let's unpack a little bit about that experience. Talk about being raised for 13 years with Mayan Indians in Guatemala. What were some of the lessons you got out of those 13 years of living there away from Western world? I'm sure you were born in the U.S., correct? I, yes, I was born in the U.S. I was four when we left. Yes. My, I have a, a middle brother who was also born in the U.S., and then I have a young brother who was born in Guatemala, mm. where we lived. It's, I would say the primary lesson was really self-sufficiency. Mm. We think of it as self-sufficiency because we're used to having so much around us. Those folks, the, the folks I lived with, wouldn't consider it self-sufficiency. They would just consider it living, I suppose. Mm-hmm. So we had to grow most of our own food. We, you know, we didn't have electricity or running water. So we had to figure that stuff out, you know, figure out how to tap the water, water supply underground. We had to bring a diesel generator in. We, you know, there was, we were trapped for six months at a time because of some hurricane that came through. So it's just really an, uh, one experience after another of just having life happen to you and not having a safety net. Mm. A lot of people, it was also during the civil war during the late sixties and early seventies in Guatemala. So, you know, uh, tens of thousands of people were killed. So it was really quite a dangerous time in that country's history as well. But just learning how to let life throw things at you and not not letting it knock you off center, so to speak. And I think that's been something that's been helpful to me as bad things or less than good things have happened. Realizing I tell myself this all the time. It's like, what's the worst that could happen when some disaster strikes? Well, 
I mean, I could be dead. I guess that's the worst. But but if I'm still alive, what's the worst that could happen? Mm-hmm. It's like, well, I'm homeless. I'm wandering the streets. And I, could I live that way? And the answer is yes, I could. So I, I'm not too afraid of experimenting and losing what I have because I'm not super attached to it. I enjoy it. And I think it comes from living a life like that where you didn't take anything for granted. If you wanted a hamburger, well, you had to go get the cow and kill it and grind mm-hmm. it up. Then you had to eat it right away because you didn't have refrigeration. So it was like the decision-making tree was very different at that mm. at that time. Mm. And then you left that environment, went to college, went to grad school, started working, and then eventually started your own business, which was a marketing agency. But in your book, you confess that the marketing agency wasn't doing well, and you actually had the itch to do something else. And that's kind of when you stumbled kind of into advising other marketing agency principals on how to become better uh, principals in their agencies, correct? Right, exactly. Yeah, my firm, I'm not consulting with other agencies because I ran some brilliant firm. It wasn't that way at all. It was a very, very average firm. And when I think back over the things I learned during the six years of doing that, I do not remember too many of the lessons that came from the things I did well. And there were some things that I did well. What I do remember and they're just seared in my brain. I'll never forget them are the things I did really poorly. Mm. And, and so those lessons stuck with me. Right. And I could carry those over immediately Mm. into my work with other clients. And so we have this crazy idea that we have to have been successful in every single area before we can help somebody else. That's not the case, right? Mm. We can, we can learn from our own mistakes, learn from the mistakes of others. So my first real entrepreneurial venture was really the six years running an agency. But my first super successful entrepreneurial venture was taking the mistakes that I made during that time and being able to apply them with other clients. One of the things that I had learned early on was that I was not going to compromise on my positioning Mm. and on what I felt like the money was worth. And Mm. so I don't, I don't remember if I talk about this in the book or not, but for the six, the first six or seven months of running this business, I wasn't sure that there'd be enough work to really keep me busy. And so I had a part-time job because I didn't want to compromise. Like panic is the father of financial compromise, right? And I didn't want to feel that compromise. So just started doing this until it took off much quicker than I anticipated. And, and I've been blessed by making those right positioning decisions, working really hard and learning from a lot of people. Mm, I, I love how you said that because like every other entrepreneur, you know that the first thing you need to do when you start a business is you need to make sure that you're able to get clients to pay your bills. But if you're not able to pay your bills, then you're afraid of having to go get a job to support right. you or taking any business that comes through the door, which could actually force you to do things you don't want to do. But you were able to balance that out and say, I have a part-time job, which will give me some run rate or run room until right. the business is able to to scale and support itself and do exactly what I wanted to do. So in that process of starting this business, was that when you started getting the inspiration to write this book, The Business of Expertise? Well, I think some of the early seeds were planted back then, but this book, so, you know, I didn't start thinking deeply about writing this book until about two years ago. And then mm-hmm. when I really sat down to finish it, it was a year ago now. Yeah. And the book itself, 
ended up being completely different than what I envisioned. I, when I sat down, it was going to be 120,000 words instead of 45,000 words. It was going to be more of a textbook slash encyclopedia. And I was boring myself to death writing this thing, and it became much more of a passionate discourse. And so, yeah, the, the first four books I wrote, were very different. They were really more like textbooks, like they were designed to help people, not necessarily inspire them. Mm-hmm. And this one is really designed to inspire people as much as possible around the notion of expertise. I just want, I want somebody to read this and I want them to be excited about the fact that they have made courageous choices mm-hmm. to be experts in something. And then I want them to be able to turn that expertise into money and impact. It's like mm. the ultimate entrepreneurial dream. I don't care. There's some things I don't care at all about. And one of those is growing. I, and I, I wish I don't understand why we have this obsession with growing. Let's have an obsession with making money at whatever size we are and an obsession with making a difference for clients and not somehow feel like we're inferior second class entrepreneurs if we're not growing. So I have a very different take on entrepreneurship. I would so, say. so when you say growing, you mean growing in terms of adding more um, employees under you, right. building right. out branch offices and all that stuff, getting your your name or or whatever put up in Fortune 100 or 500 or top 1,000 management consulting firms out there, correct? Right. So Yeah, exactly. Okay. And yeah, like, go ahead. No, no, sorry, you go on. Well, like somehow getting your name on the fastest growing Inc. 500 list mm-hmm. or Inc. 5,000 list, who the hell cares about that? It doesn't, it doesn't mean anything. It doesn't say anything about your culture. It doesn't say anything about profitability. It doesn't say anything about the role that you particularly want to have. So I, my view of entrepreneurship is very different. I want entrepreneurs to make a lot of money, and I want them to do really good work. And then if they want to grow, in other words, if they will fully embrace the notion of of having and managing employees and paying attention to the culture, then by God, yes, you should grow. That's exactly your mission in life. But if that's not what you like doing, if you like being closer to the work, then don't grow. And that's not a sign of failure at all. It's a, we have a strange perspective on growth in the U.S., I think. Mm. All right. So let's dive deeper into your entrepreneurial philosophy. So you, in your book, you said that Three main reasons why an expert business should exist, which is make money, move the needle, and create a culture where people can thrive, which you've just uh, mentioned right now. So let's start at the very beginning in terms of being able to create this expert business. You talked about how for you to be an expert, you have to... Let me look at my notes and make sure I get it right. You you said... um, Expertise flows from focus, which flows from positioning. And of course, positioning and focus comes from being able to recognize patterns and being able to use those patterns in an intelligent manner. Correct? Right. Exactly. Yes. Right. So tell us a little bit more about that and how you, how you feel it's either being incorrectly done in the marketplace and how it should be done better. So fundamentally, we have to create a positioning that would not allow our prospective clients to find too many suitable substitutes for what it is we do. 
Now, they have to be able to find some substitutes because if we are the only option, then chances are good that we've landed on an, uh, an option that's not viable because mm. other people have certainly thought of it and chased it and then it didn't work out. So yeah. we want to we occupy a space where there are other competitors, but not too many. And that means narrowing our focus. And the purpose of narrowing our focus is so that when we withhold our expertise, either for real or just threaten to do so, then we can command a higher price because they're going to find it difficult to find another option. Let's say, let's say you're a coach, you're a business coach. Mm -hmm. Okay. How many business coaches are there? Oh my God. You know, there's hundreds and hundreds of thousands of them. So if you, if you feel like your coaching work is worth this much money and you can't find somebody to pay that much, they can go find another coach who's going to fill that gap and it's not going to be difficult for them. But what if you are a coach for executives going through a merger acquisition or something mm -hmm. like that? Now, all of a sudden, you have a very unique expertise that will be more difficult to replace. Yeah. And now, once you work with one client like that and then another client like that next month and so on, you're in a position. You, your positioning allows you to start noticing the patterns from one situation to the next and that builds up your intelligence and it just feeds on itself. So that's the, the connection between positioning and expertise. Mm. Now, when you talk about positioning, you mentioned in the book, but I also noticed even when I was working in a big four consulting firm that big consulting firms are not necessarily positioned in the best way. That means um, they serve at at the pleasure of the client and not necessarily selling their expertise, positioning themselves in such a way that they are higher value because people think they're interchangeable. Why are big firms terrible at positioning themselves? Mm -hmm. Well, I would say they're actually not terrible, but that their positioning is, um, is misunderstood. So mm -hmm. the positioning that a large firm has is the fact that they're a large firm and that's as far as it needs to go. So, we have a, an IBM, for instance, who, not, who needs to hire a consulting firm. Okay. IBM looks around and they says, all right, the first requirement is they must be big because this is a massive project. We can't afford for this to fail, and it's going to require an entire army to get this done. So they look around and they say, all right, these four major consulting firms would qualify. Now, second, let's look at which ones have the closest experience to what we need. So it comes down to... Um, being a large firm, your primary advantage is the fact that you're a large firm. You, you're you not a small, nimble person. You're a, a consultant. You, you have to go in there and solve things at a big level. So it looks like these big firms are not positioned well, but they are. They just don't have to talk about it. Their mm. positioning is being a massive firm. Mm. And as a result, they're able to attract all the clients they need, Correct. The big right now. If I'm a small firm, then my positioning is not that I'm a massive firm. My positioning is something that's a smaller chunk of something that I can bite off and chew and do it effectively. So now I'm just going to be a consultant that works on just this, or you know, it depends on if you're going to position it vertically or horizontally. So what can you pull off? One of the biggest mistakes that the big firms make is that they don't use their expertise as a big firm where they could. They're out competing against the smaller firms rather than just taking those jobs 
that are a good fit for them. So one of the principles around service offerings for experts is that most of your clients should use most of your services most of the time. And if they aren't, then you're not positioned well. You have this, you have this buffet of services that only some clients use and you're basically missing out on the power of your positioning. So you only want to design service offerings that most of your clients will use most of the time. Mm. And going back to the smaller firms, I know that a lot of people when starting out, you know, in as much as the expert consultant knows what they're doing, they tend to underprice themselves or are kind of like timid when they're trying to bid for work, basically because they feel, oh, I'm small or I may not know everything. Or I may not have all the solutions. And that stems from a lack of confidence and swagger, if you will. You know, one of my friends always talk about <laughs> he might not have a lot of money, but he has swagger to compete with anybody he wants to compete with in business. So could you tell us a little bit more about why the confidence deficiency in many consultants is actually keeping their business at a low level of operation? Mm. Yeah, and I actually think it's okay to compromise on pricing as long as you don't lie to yourself and believe that you will be able to turn this same client that you compromised on into a great client down the road. Mm. As long as you're okay wasting this opportunity because maybe you really need work right now or Mm. maybe you need to build a specific expertise and you need a victim client to help you with that, then it's okay to charge them less, but it's not okay to assume that you'll be able to turn them into a great client later. So, you want to run your business. The reason most consultants fail um, as firms, it has nothing to do with their ability. It's the decisions they make around how to run their business. So if they don't have a thick enough cash cushion Mm -hmm. or if they hire too many people or if they don't pay attention to their new own new business efforts or if they have a client that's too large, those are the things that take them down. It's not the quality of the advice. It's the quality of the decisions they make about how to run their business. So, you have to like if, if long term you want to run your business so well that you can you always have more opportunity than you have capacity so that you can say no and not panic. But if you're not in that place, it's OK to compromise as long as you don't tell yourself that you're going to turn that client into a great one later. It just won't happen. Mm, so you basically you have to take a loss leader up front. Right. (laughs) Yeah. And you're not just taking that loss on this one project. Mm -hmm. You're basically when you compromise on a new client that way, you're actually compromising for the entire life of the relationship. Mm. So it's a it's a bigger decision for you. Mm. That's 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 very powerful. All right. And let's move on to another thing that I found interesting, which was um, you you talked a lot about, you know, following the common practice of saying do what you love and the money will follow as being incorrect that you should actually seek to yes try and follow and do what you love but also do that by also adhering to um something higher which is basically using your brain you know because we can't all work in jobs that we love it's not um, it's not practical so to speak Right. Yeah. And a lot of that thinking comes, again, back from my upbringing. If, if those folks, those Mayan Indians had believed that they just needed to do what they loved and success would follow, then most of them would have starved. You know, they, they didn't love going out in the cornfield every morning and working. They did it because it was either that or starve. And I, I just it's kind of a first world problem to assume that we 
deserve to only do the things that we love. I don't think that there's any benefit in not loving what you do. I, I wish that everybody loved their work, but that should be way down the ladder. Plus, I think what's more important than loving your work is delivering value for clients. And for most people, delivering value is something that over time they'll slowly fall in love with. And there's nothing quite as uh, as a charge for me than being competent and earning the money that people are paying me. So I think we've kind of gotten off course there. And we hear this all the time, like, well, what you need to do is just follow your heart and mm -hmm. success will come. Well, it's like bullshit. A lot of people are following their heart and success is not coming. So yeah. apparently that, 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 that little piece of advice belongs on a bumper sticker and not in some consultant's handbook. Mm. Now, could you give us one or two case studies of what you've done in practice and how you've actually helped turn some consultant's business around? Mm, yeah. Well, I, um, I would say that, you know, apart from some of the specifics, I would say yes. there are some, there are some specific, um, principles that really work for every consultant. Mm. And one of those is to make sure you retain your independence. So be an objective outside expert, because that's okay. one of the things that people are paying you a lot of money for. You will seldom introduce an idea or bless an idea that they have not already thought of. Mm. That's not your job to bring new ideas to the table. Sometimes it is, but usually it's not. Okay. It's more to reaffirm their own instincts and their own thinking and to help them make a final decision. So that's one important um, qualification there. Another one is that in most cases, this doesn't feed our egos, but in most cases, the answers that consultants bring to the table are already at the company in the sense that the employees, the frontline workers, um, the ones doing most of the work in a disciplined setting, they already know what should change and they have been saying the same thing. Mm -hmm. And now you're an outsider coming in and saying the same thing. And now all of a sudden they listen to you. Mm -hmm. You need to understand you're really the smartest the, the way you can be very smart is to listen very carefully to what other people are already telling them. Another principle is to be, be kind, always be kind, but always be candid. Even mm -hmm. it's better to be wrong every once in a while than it is to not be candid with people. You lose your credibility instantly unless you read between the lines and try to interpret what's not being said. Or mm -hmm. in many cases, uh, a client will will come to you with what they call the presenting symptom, but underneath it is a much deeper issue that you may not even be qualified to address, but mm. it is your job to surface that. So if they come to you and say, oh, we have a turnover problem and they have some ideas about how to fix it. When you start looking into it deeper, you discover that the boss is just a jerk mm. and that's that's the the boss who hired you. Yeah. Well, your job is to point that out in as kind a way as possible and figure out how to express those things without getting decked in the head all the time, right? <laughs> it's being a job of a consultant is really listening and being articulate and to be bold. It's not mm. as much about brilliance as it is about those sorts of things. Yeah. And I know that, as you just mentioned this, I know a lot of consultants listening to this show will be saying, okay, yes, I'm supposed to go in there and say, okay, yes, the turnover is high, but it's as a result of you being a jerk 
as a boss. Now, if I tell the boss that, I'm not going to probably get a second engagement from these guys. This is my one and done engagement letter with this company. Right. You know? So how can how can they balance being bold as well as you know trying to get the next paycheck from the relationship? Yeah, and I would just give up on any hope of getting the next paycheck. I don't mm. think that's your job as a consultant. Your consultant is your job as a consultant is to do the right thing. It doesn't matter whether you get paid the second time. That's also why. So I've I've um, designed my own consulting practice very specifically. There are about ten different rules there, and one of them is that all fees need to be fully prepaid. Oh, okay. And somebody asked me, "Well, that seems ridiculous. We don't do that with any other." consultant and I say it's not about cash flow it's about me never wanting to hold back on being honest with you and mm. if you haven't you haven't finished paying me then that's going to be in the back of my head and I owe you complete honesty mm. so that's why it's set up that way and I, if somebody hires me to work with them later I don't care they many times they don't like me right away many times when they do hire me it's three five or eight years later and I'm going to be around then so I'm fine with it it's mm. not about making them happy. It's about being a lone soul, intelligent, helpful voice in the wilderness that they have not had in their lives before. That's the job of a consultant. Wow. I mean, I got so much, I got a, I got a chill from hearing that. <laughs> so, so, so tell us a few things, you know, because I too, I'm in the process of building a consulting business. I know people listening out there, especially those transitioning out of corporate into entrepreneurship are, are thinking of using their expertise to earn a living from themselves. So tell us a little bit more about how to build a better and effective uh, consulting business. You've already mentioned one invaluable advice which i am going to try and follow which i i know may be hard for a lot of people but could you share some other words of wisdom around building an expert business sure i would say a common mistake that consultants make at the outset especially when they're leaving um, corporate life is they underestimate how important their own positioning and lead generation is and that's because what usually gives them the courage to jump out on their own is that they have a few contacts and so the, it won't be difficult to fill their dance card in the early days. Mm. Th those relationships tend to wither and dry up a little bit after three to four years. And it also takes two to three years to really get your own positioning and lead generation up to speed. And so a lot of folks find that they run out of good work. They have this early sort of artificial success, often because of their contacts, but they also the success is dangerous because they usually have a client concentration problem. In other mm. words, they have too much work coming from one or two or three clients. Yes. So one of the biggest mistakes they make is to underestimate how they have to consistently build their own lead generation machine. And I don't mean... I, you know, I don't mean digital marketing of their own. I just mean building their own brand and developing their own insight. That's that's another thing I would say is one of the most important things uh, a consultant can do is to is to write regularly, even if nobody reads it, because mm. that's the simple single thing that will make them smarter. So putting yourself on a podcast, for instance, and interviewing people, it forces you to think clearly because, you, you know, here this is going to be live at some point. People are going to listen to the questions you ask. It forces you to be smarter. Same thing about writing. Hmm. If you're going to publish it, you, you're going to write differently, right? So yes. I would say writing – more people 
here's another mistake consultants make is they they wrap their sort of average advice in excellent customer service, which is a big mistake. You um, most of the great customer service, this notion of delighting customers, it's not what experts think about. Um, the notion of delighting customers is usually masking some underlying poor positioning. Hmm. I Experts don't they don't think about delighting customers. They think about doing what's right for customers. The best doctors, the best lawyers, the, you know, the, the best experts in the world, they don't worry about delighting their customers. Mm-hmm. They worry about doing what the customers need, mm-hmm. what's best for them. And so, you know, don't think that having great customer service is going to make up for some poor positioning on your part. It's just knowing what you're talking about will never grow out of style. And the more you keep thinking about getting smarter and smarter, the more it will do for you. Mm, I love that. And as we start to wind down this show, David, I want to ask you a few wrapping up questions. Uh, looking back at your career thus far, if you could do it all over again, if you could go back and tell yourself something and say, hey, man, David, we didn't do this right the first time. This is how you would do it to succeed faster. What would you go back and tell yourself? Well, I might not have spent six years full time in grad school, but I don't honestly have all that much regret because it's mm. easy for all of us to look back on our lives and yes. see see things we would have done differently. But it's impossible to see those things when you're in the midst of them. So I, I feel like I could have done 20 things in life and, and the other 19 would have had nothing to do with what I'm doing now. So yeah. no regrets. I'm, I'm fine with the way things have unfolded. Mm. And... In, ter- in terms of your business and your practice, you've talked a lot about that. You shared some very insightful words right now. But looking down the road in the next five to ten years, do you think there's going to be a new incarnation or a new version of David C. Baker? Like, wh- What do you think your plans are for the next five to ten years based on the way the world is changing? Yeah, I uh, well, I just released a new website yesterday, so I guess that timing's pretty interesting. It's been <laughs> seven years since I'd done that, and I so and I went away from branding as a company to branding as a person. I do think the world is moving in that direction. Yes. There's there's certain degree of trust building between individuals and your clients. I want to be speaking and writing more, and I want to be consulting less. I always want to consult because that's what keeps me honest and and forces me to think deeply. But mm-hmm. I would like to do more writing and more speaking. So over the next uh, five to ten years, that's 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 one of my goals for sure. Mm-hmm. And wh- when you say writing, are you talking about writing more books or writing more books. Art- articles for magazines and whatnot? Uh, more books. I've okay. written probably a thousand articles over the years, and okay. I, the world doesn't need another article from me. I'd, <laughs> I'd really like to write some more books. I've got a bunch of ideas there. It's just a matter of finding the time. Oh, like what ideas are you mulling on? Well, I've always wanted to write a novel, and I don't ha- have any idea whether I'm skilled at it or not. Chances are good I'm not, but I want to try it. So I've started one. It's about this consultant who makes some really bad business decisions and is homeless in Nashville. So obviously that's about me <laughs> called Nashville Falling. I, I also want to write a book on um, how 
uh, smart thinkers filter ideas. That's one I'm thinking about writing as well. Mm-hmm. I want to write one about the inside of a consulting career. Mm-hmm. So I haven't I haven't settled on it, but um, I've set aside a week to do some writing coming up here shortly. So that's I'll spend most of the week deciding on what the book should be about for sure. Uh, okay. And my last question along this line is, you know, reading through your book, I noticed that you talked a lot about a not liking the process of researching and getting the data for the book but actually enjoying the process of writing the book because you'll get insights that come to you when you least expect them and whatnot so talk to us a little bit about your writing process so to me you know coming up with the idea first and then doing the research which means gathering all of it and 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 then next for me is really outlining and that's that's all the hard work after Mm. that it's all fun so to me, getting through the outline is sort of like putting the frame up of the house and, and the drywall. Mm-hmm. And then paint, painting is like um, writing to me. Once I've got the research done and the outline done, then the writing, I write two to 3,000 words every morning, every day. And it takes me five, six weeks to write a book. But that's mm. a little elusive because – it, you know, it may take me two years to do the research and the outlining yeah. and the writing part is easy, but so it just, I think all of us are very different, but that's just how my, my mind works that way. Wow. Great. And with that said, David, we've reached the end of the show. I want to thank you for coming on to share your words of wisdom and your expertise with us. So before I let you go, where can people find you, get to know more about you, the book, and of course your business? Sure. So um, my the new website that just went live yesterday is davidcbaker.com. That'd be a good place to go. And then if you want to know more about the book itself, you can go the most recent book. It's expertise.is, expertise.is. I also do a podcast called Two Bobs. I do that with a colleague of mine. And um, between those three things, that should keep you busy. Great. Thank you for having me. Appreciate uh, it. And really I'll link to it. all that in the, all, in the show notes as we publish. Thank you so much for having me. Really appreciate it. Uh, thanks a lot, David, for coming. Hey, everyone. Thanks for tuning in to the show today. If you love what you hear on today's episode of the podcast, go to iTunes and leave a review and a comment. It helps other great listeners like yourself find the show. And of course, you can always find more episodes of the Bulletproof Entrepreneurial Podcast at www.odogwu.com.